0: everyone welcome to the fpa paraplanning podcast the forum for power planning professionals to delve deeper into the important issues facing our profession and engage with experts on the topics that matter our aim is to bring you discussions that will help inform educate and illuminate the pathway forward for you and for our profession as we navigate this period of transformation my name's kate fellows of the professional power planner I'm partnering with the fpa to bring these power planning podcasts to you today i'm joined by nadia docker of kinetic compliance you're probably familiar with nadia she is a very strong contributor to the fpa community and we welcome her today to talk about all things compliance as they relate to power planners welcome nadia
1: thank you kate
0: so as I understand it, there's no shortage of work for compliance consultants around at the moment. What's keeping you busy?
1: Yes, that's very, very true. I think particularly in the last 12 months, um, the compliance needs of AFS sales and advisors directly has increased dramatically. Um, and there's just that constant moving feast of legislative updates, new requirements, new information. I think certainly at the moment what we're seeing advisors spending their time on is bedding down their new FDS annual agreement processes is very much a hot topic.
0: There is so much going on, isn't there? And you are right in the thick of it. But in terms of power planning, I I know we did a workshop a couple of years back, and it was the first, or sorry, the last, (laughs) the last face-to-face workshop that uh, we did at FPA Congress. And we talked a lot about compliance hotspots. So I just wanted to touch on that today. What are the hotspots that paraplanners should be aware of that you're seeing when you're going through audit of SOAs in particular?
1: Sure. And I don't think the hotspots ever change dramatically. I think it's that probably the expectation of the level of detail and customization back to relevant circumstances that uh, has become more important than it was in the past where we were able to probably rely a bit more on templated text. Whereas now it's enough to have the templated text, but then you also need to add more as to how it's appropriate to the client and how it, you know, then ties back to conversations that the advisors had with the client and is relevant to the objectives that they're trying to achieve by the advice that's been given. So in terms of the hotspots, still seeing sort of ongoing issues with scoping of advice. And I love scoping because I think it's probably the easiest way to set up an advice document to understand what is actually going to be addressed and what isn't going to be addressed and why. And it's sometimes that why that is left out because a little bit of like even a one-sentence explanation can add so much to an SOA. It really does. Yeah. And I think particularly as it relates to, I believe it's standard six, so your competing objectives and clients' broader long-term interests as well, where we do see those conflicting goals. You can certainly set up the SOA in a way that, you know, where you actually show why one goal is being prioritised over another. We're still not seeing that very clearly in some instances. And it may simply be dealing with that in the alternative section so that you can clearly show that the other obvious strategy has been considered, but why it wasn't given priority to the recommendations that were actually given. What else are we seeing? One of probably the more interesting areas that we do work around is risk profiling and investment philosophies, because we do work with a lot of clients that have... I guess, internal product offerings that can be deemed conflicted. Now, when I say conflicted, I don't mean necessarily that they're taking additional fees from that. It's just that they have arranged that product, whether it be an SMA, an MDA, or even their own model portfolios that they're putting together, that there's just not enough demonstration around how the features and benefits of those offerings are actually relatable to the client's goals and objectives. You know, I think it's always easy <laughs> when you've got uh, any sort of rollover from one product to another where there's uh, obvious fee savings, that's, that's sort of a you know mm-hmm. green light for most SOAs, but where the fee savings are minimal or um, in some cases high, the fees end up being higher, that they're not properly explaining why the client actually needs that investment style that's going to, you know, not potentially save them money, but, you know, they might be trying to achieve and this I say with a disclaimer of obviously past performance yeah. cannot be relied upon for future <laughs> performance, but you know, they might be genuinely trying to achieve better investment outcomes for their clients and the products they're currently in, and yeah. it just needs further information in the SOA to explain why, why you're doing what you're doing.
0: It is one of those things that I'm quite passionate about, and I find that I speak. Uh, to planners and advisors alike about putting in a section, and I know some templates have it, but putting in a section to the SOA that has investment portfolio commentary. Hmm. And what we don't want, and I'm sure you would agree in that section, is to see a copy and paste from a, a fact sheet from a managed, each of the managed funds. What we do want to see as is a discussion around as you say, why they're using that particular platform or product and, and why they've blended those particular funds or uh, stocks or whatever it may be together in the way that they have for that client's circumstances. I, I agree. That's It's one that I think is a weakness as it stands.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's a little bit of an easier conversation to have with businesses that are, you know go on and organise an MDR and SMA because they have to have the investment philosophy. But like, well, I mean, there's other businesses out there that, you know, might be investing in the dimensional way of doing things which is great but very rarely are they then explaining why they believe in that model and why Mm -hmm. they believe this type of the science behind that type of model is appropriate for the client so you know and like it doesn't need to be war and peace it just needs to be a bit of an explanation Um, you know we've discussed this with you and you're interested Mm -hmm. in this model because of these reasons so um and that can go a really really long way to supporting the recommendation where the you know like i said the cost savings isn't obvious i
0: would agree. And okay, so what you've said there are as as you said, it's it's very similar to what we were probably discussing in the workshop a couple of years back. You have mentioned though that there's more focus or less acceptance of templates. And I know I've read a few things from ASIC about customization and personalization and I feel like we can't say this enough Nadia <laughs> because <laughs> templates are very important But that level of customization is now expected and there is a higher standard. So some examples of situations where that's really important in an SOA. All
1: right. Take the view, it can be somewhat controversial, but there's no such thing as a compliant template. What it comes down Mm -hmm. to is the advice that goes into the template and and how it's set up and structured. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think that, you know, the template should be seen as more of a prompter because what we would consistently see this is that there's the house view. But the house view is not explained and it's then not related back to what the client's looking for. So, you know, we're going to give you level premiums because we believe in level premiums, but then there might be an absence of a conversation that client intends to hold them. So, you know, the 10, 12 plus years where we expect a potential break even point, there may not be with, you know, premium increases. So there's things there that, you know, even waiting periods, why we've selected 30, 60, 90 days, you can't just say we've chosen this and then have a standard statement. It doesn't really, really stack up towards the best interest element of relevant circumstances for the client. And I think the other thing as well with it is that where they can fall into a trap is that paraplanners and advisors read and write so many plans through the year that they forget to look at these things in detail. So what ends up happening is a lot of irrelevant discla- um, disclosures are left in there that actually have nothing to do yeah. with the situation that's been recommended unless you have a really I guess well-structured uh, SOA template that it is, you know, clear directives to add and remove. But a lot of the times we just see stuff left in that has yeah, should not be in the SOA at all or um, yes. and then the other thing that can also happen is you end up with a lot of repetitive text in there as well. So yeah, I think when you can sort of step back from an SOA template in particular and look at it with fresh eyes and go, what are the potential traps in writing this document in terms of being able to explain and link the client situation back to the advice do we have? And then sort of highlighting those areas and add custom. Yes. I like to see templates that it's like add custom because we need further information.
0: Absolutely. And I have a a set of templates and and I do have explanatory text in there but the other thing that I do to try and encourage customization is I I put sentences in there with big red letters and dollar figures wanted here and you know trying to get those outcomes and client data mm. into into the template rather than just having a whole series of templated dot points. Because it reads like a template, doesn't it?
1: It certainly does. And then when you start reading a few of the same documents from the same businesses, I actually can't differentiate the advice. It feels like you know every time somebody walks through the door, they're going to get the same advice from that particular business. And that does become a bit of a concern. So that's where we probably as auditors start pushing back a little bit with those clients and go, okay, I understand what you're trying to do here. And we always come from the position of Trying to understand what the advisor is trying to do, and then helping them to, I guess, reverse engineer that advice so that it actually works for the client or makes sense for the client. Where they really become unstuck in those situations would be if there's a client that walks through the door that doesn't fit into the traditional model, and, yes. and then they have to really think about the advice that is being given. And it's usually, unfortunately, the clients that you know have cash flow issues or don't have you know, sort of a high asset base, and then the whole advice document will fall apart pretty rapidly. They're the ones that worry me the most. Sometimes it feels like your are always nitpicking, but it's nitpicking for those scenarios so that, yeah, when you get the client that doesn't fit, you know, the nice, neat. Fit the mould. Mould, that you're able to think on your feet and adjust the advice document to that client's circumstances.
0: Absolutely. It's a really fine balance for power planners. And I used to say this to my team, between timeliness and quality. And uh-huh. so, yes, efficiency is important, um, but I often found that those SOAs that I check would read like templates when they had been completed really swiftly.
1: Uh-huh. Um,
0: so you almost need to complete it and then go back again and, and really hone in on the client information, that that second round of review when you're preparing advice documents the other thing that you said there Nadia that's of interest and I think a sticking point sometimes is that the repetition that goes into an SOA and I've read some templates that have you know the same thing said four or five times in the document and it's very frustrating but then on the other hand you have ASIC coming out in their reg guides and they say oh some repetition is good to reinforce the advice and from my point of view and I'm interested in your thoughts that repetition I think that they're looking for is more of a the summary of the advice, the executive summary might highlight some key points and then you get the detail again. They don't want to see it four or five times, do
1: they? No, they don't. <laughs> um, and look, they, it's actually funny when you go back and you read RG90, which let's face it, most people don't read this stuff. We get that. Um, <laughs> just compliance nerds <laughs> like me. Um, but no, if you go back and read RG90, you know, and even some of the other guidance that ASIC has released, they do talk about, you know, doing a summary for a client from the terms of like the clear, concise and effective piece. It's easier for them to see it and then to go into the detail in the rest of the SOA body. Um, I think the trap that a lot of practices have fallen into is that in that summary, they put too much information and justification. Yes why they're doing things and then forgetting that they're going to go through all of that in terms of the strategic advice, the benefits, the the disadvantages, the risks, and then you've got your product replacement piece as well. So it's certainly, we try to work with practices to simplify documents so that they read better, that they flow well to somebody that might be reading it as well, and that the client's getting the necessary information to make an informed decision about the recommendations that are being made. So I think, you know, that's why ASIC have suggested, you know, using things like table of contents, executive summaries to help the client understand and sort of direct their their, I guess their eyes to where you want them to read.
0: Absolutely and yes please try not to make the executive summary uh, complete copy and paste of the recommendations section of the SOA.
1: (laughs) Actually, just a tip, it's uh, something that we do with some of the practices we work with is that a very simple summary table, which is, you know, what were the goals or what are the goals? You know, what are the barriers that are preventing the client from achieving their goals at the moment? And then what are the recommendations that are going to help the client to achieve that goal in the future and maybe not immediately, might be over a long-term engagement? And that provides a really succinct picture of why the advice is actually usually in the client's best interests as well because you're sort of thinking about why can't they do what they want to do right now with what they have. It also addresses some of those issues with product replacement where it's not well demonstrated that the client's existing product can't meet their needs.
0: Absolutely. What about just talking? I know we seem to be talking a bit about templates. I'll ask one more question regarding that because it is coming up a lot at the moment. What about the way people are writing? Are you seeing some improvements? It's something that I work on with paraplanners in the way that they communicate. And I think ASICS made some good suggestions in this space where they've said, use shorter sentences, don't use any technical jargon, you know, use plain English. So, Originally, when we started writing SOAs, we used to speak very formally, and there's still a few, a few of those around, but what are you seeing in that?
1: Oh, I see everything. <laughs> we see very informal templates that are, you know, I guess maybe a little bit too direct um, and a, a little bit too light on in terms of disclosures and the customization we've been talking about. And then we see, I guess probably the more traditionally institutionalized way of templated documents which is over disclosure to the nth degree and yeah so I I think it just depends on how much flexibility you have within your dealer group arrangements in terms of being able to develop and own your templates? On yes. What you can really do there, because we do understand that a lot of um, well, it's different because we mostly work with self licensed AF That there is no flexibility for some people or some paraplanners planners and advisors to to be able to change those documents to fit around their business, which you know they just have to work with that. So it, it really depends. It's it's. I know, I think there's a lot of sort of side projects going on and I certainly know the FPA are involved in working on simplified advice documents, which, you know, I ideally would love to see at this point because I think they've probably gone to a point where, you know, we know clients aren't reading them. They're probably some cases yeah. definitely too technical and not really getting to the heart of why, the you know, or what the client's looking for from that advice relationship. So yeah. I think that's definitely just going to continue to be a work in progress at the moment. Yeah, or and well into the future, I should say. It's, it's I think, that has got a lot a long way to go. That conversation.
0: So that probably leads quite nicely into where it is progressing to, and the FPA is also very involved with Ben and the digitisation of of advice. Are you seeing anything out there in the marketplace of evidence of digital SOAs or anything?
1: Sadly, no. And I would love to. I really would love to see people get out there and challenge the status quo. I mean, I think a big part of the reason that we're, you know, where we're currently at with SOA templates is that it's just sort of evolved from the dealer group arrangement rather than Mm. genuinely what the Corporations Act and the Asset Guidance is asking for. So there is flexibility certainly in the way that you present that information to the client. Mm-hmm. What we've seen a little bit more of is that rather than presenting the SOA to the client, that there are practices that are, I guess, doing a core component presentation of all the key issues and recommendations and what they want the client sort of as their key takeaway so I guess it's the summary on steroids in a sort of more visual environment for the clients which I think works really well the only challenge with that is that they forget to do their file notes with that meeting that then shows that the clients have understood the advice or whether they've had any further conversations around variations and or things the client may not necessarily want to commit to at that point in time it would be nice to see more of that. And I think there's probably a lot of learnings to take out of it in the future before we arrive at a space where it's, it's working really well. But I, I would dearly love to see advisors get more creative with the way they present their advice documents.
0: Do you think it's because it's new that they've got the SOA and then they're doing the presentation and, and the file notes is another thing and oops, we've forgotten to do it.
1: Yeah. And I think the whole process (laughs) is incredibly time consuming. I think anytime you sit down and you want to challenge how you present advice, there's a, you know, Mm -hmm. there has to be a general acceptance that it's going to be a six to 12 month project. It's a lot of work. Mm -hmm. It's not a a simple project because once you start breaking it down you know by each strategy or the way that you want to do things it, it takes a bit of time to restructure and redefine the communication around it so and I think that at the moment advisors and you know, para planners are so time poor because there's so much going on in terms of other mm-hmm. change that it's hard to sort of focus the attention that a project like that needs or they need somebody else to come in a project manager for them to keep the project driving. Absolutely. And I
0: feel like that's where we're at at the moment. I feel like there's a growing army of consultants that are trying to to help the advice businesses because they just don't have the capacity within their own walls to to take on these projects. So it it will happen, but I think, as you say, it's baby steps at this stage.
1: And it is. It's a long-term thing and, you know, you've got to create the space to sort of beta test it or beta test it with, um, as well with the clients, figure out what works, what doesn't before you end on that final project or pr- products that you want to run with. And like I said, it just takes time and a little bit of patience, which...
0: <laughs> think at the moment, maybe advisors don't have a lot of. <laughs> you can't, can't really blame
1: them, to be no, honest. No, I do not at all. <laughs>
0: <laughs> do you think that the power planners are the ones uh, preparing those presentation documents or are the power planners doing the SOA and then someone else is doing that?
1: I think it depends on the structure of the business and the resources that are available. So I think in a lot of the larger businesses that, you know, where they've got the admin, the associates, the paraplanners, that's sort of been done at the paraplanner associate level, ready for the client meeting, but it would depend on the the resources. The business.
0: You mentioned at the start, Nadia, that uh, one of the things that is taking up a lot of time and focus of advisors at the moment is the change in annual statements and the new... Fixed term agreements. Yes. Do you want to explain just briefly from a parrot planner point of view, how that's going to impact, I guess in the main, it's their data entry, their date fields and that type of thing, and then also um, disclosure requirements within advice documents?
1: Sure. So I think, um, you know, there has finally been a uh, clarification by the regulator that fixed term agreements can be for periods up to 12 months. So we are seeing a fairly significant shift across the board to these fixed term agreements. Obviously, a lot of the institutions moved this um, well over 12 months ago because that's how they want to operate the AFSLs within their control. So at this stage, probably seeing sort of about 50/50 on whether clients or advisors are sticking with the ongoing service agreements in a more traditional sense versus moving to fixed term and each of those has their own challenges around key dates and I think that it's it's important to understand what the changes are happening within the software that you're working with, and how you're going to track these new key dates. So, you know, and the new terminology as well, where the day of consent, consent day, is changing to an anniversary day. The time periods to get, you know, the FD, the new FDS out, is sixty days, with a you know further one hundred and twenty days from the anniversary date to get it signed. So, working out what is the best way for you to be able to track that in the software if you're responsible for it, and then also whether the advisor is planning. Planning on changing the wording around their service offering in light of the, you know, July 1 changes because a lot of them are taking this opportunity to go back and look at the service offerings and the FTSs and are they happy with the way that the they're the worded and whether they're going to update, which means that you would in effect have to update uh, foundation SOAs to reflect those ongoing service arrangements as well. I think a lot of the fixed term will be done Outside of SOAs, in more so, I guess, a legal agreement, it will look like. So that's going to be less of a concern for those particular practices but at the moment a lot of them are sort of trying to transition as simply as possible because it is a bit of a disruption getting everything set up and templates and getting clients used to written consent. And this is certainly the first wave of major legislative changes that are coming through in October. You know, we've got the design and distribution obligations coming in which is going to affect how you know products are recommended and selected for clients. Then need to be factored in changes to breach reporting as well so there's a lot of significant change still to come and I think that's probably what's leading to a sense of everyone feeling a little bit overwhelmed
0: absolutely Mm -hmm. and rightly so so I like to to summarize in the power planning perspective (laughs) but um, certainly the in-house power planners will play more of a leading role in this because often they are responsible for the the upkeep of the database and data fields, depending on the size of the business, of course. But for those of you who are outsourced paraplanners, just be mindful of the fact that the practices are going through this process. Um, maybe check in with your clients, your advice practices, and see which direction they're heading in. And, and being that, I guess, second set of eyes to make sure if they are making changes, they are coming through when you're preparing the advice
1: for them. Definitely.
0: That's great. Well, I guess that that pretty much wraps it up. Is there anything else that you would like to highlight to the power planning community or any last words of advice?
1: I think probably the top piece of advice I have for power planners, and this is whether you're working internally within a business or as an external resource to a business as well, is that if when you're putting that plan together, it's not making sense to you, there's a very high chance if the file gets picked up for audit, it is going to... potentially fail key areas due to not properly demonstrating how the advice is appropriate or how it relates to relevant circumstances and it's usually that absence of information whether it's a detailed file note or there's conflicting information in um, fact finds and file notes that ends up in the SOA so data integrity issues we see a fair bit of as well so I think that it's important to in your role and it's a little bit hard for some people to do this but I think it's important and it helps actually not only protect your own integrity but it also helps protect the advisors that you're working with is just to give them some feedback that you know you don't feel that there is enough information to substantiate a recommendation or that you know where you're putting particular information into an SOA just saying that this needs to be supported by a file note which you haven't seen rather than just being an order taker and doing what is asked of you and you know a couple of times we've seen that happen probably more than a couple sorry that's- probably underestimating the problem, you know, where we see rollovers that are put together that just, there's no added benefit to the client. And then, you know, we're the ones pushing back on the mm. advisor going, what have you done here? And this is what we usually pick up in pre-vet as well. So this is thankfully before it goes to to be presented to a client, but, you know, just challenging the advice going, I don't know if this would actually pass an audit because yeah. you are that first line of defence um, for those advisors and you're reading it with a fresh pair of eyes, which it's really hard, I think, for advisors to self-assess when they're so deeply involved in a client they've already spent hours talking to and they're just filling in the missing information in their head because they remember the conversation. That doesn't necessarily mean there's evidence on file that it actually happened. So I think that's probably one of the most important roles of a power planner is that accountability factor to the advisor as well.
0: That's really great feedback because I often say to power planners that also the advisor doesn't have that overall view of all the information that the power planner gets because they get it in a consolidated view when they receive all of the information. So it's the first chance to take that overall look at the situation and all of the supporting information and make sure it all makes sense. We used to have in in my business a standard method, I guess, where... There were certain things that we wouldn't prepare the advice document unless we had and there were other things that if it was a supporting document and the soa could still be written we would do it and then provide that feedback so it's important that as a power planner they have a sense of that you know what are the absolute no-go situations where so for example if the product replacement doesn't make sense, I can't prepare the statement of advice because I can't actually justify the recommendations and that flows through to many parts of the SOA. But if it's just, you know, a piece of evidence of a balance or or something of the like, well, then you can probably get away with letting them know and still preparing the SOA.
1: And you'd be surprised how many advice issues can be fixed with just adding a simple sentence or a simple paragraph that just gives a little bit of background information. You know, a lot of compliance fixes aren't go back and rewrite an SOA or go and spend another two, three hours researching something. It is like, okay, picking up the phone, having a quick chat to the advisor, asking what was happening at this point in time. And once you understand the situation, then just adding a little bit more, as we say, customization, personalization to that SOA that gives the background that's necessary to pave the way for the recommendation. And that takes most of those fixes are like five minutes at the max, that's it.
0: That's great. Well, thank you so much for your time today. It's been brilliant, Nadia. And I'm sure the power planning community will have got some great tips as they always do from you. So thank you for your time. And no doubt we will chat to you again soon.
1: Thanks, Kite. Thanks for having me.